Let's pray together. Father, thanks for another opportunity to explore your word. I ask for your help now as I preach. I pray for each one of us that you would help us see with fresh eyes your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to thank you for those of you who came last week to our Vision Sunday. Um, if, you were able, if you weren't able to be here, I want to encourage you to go to the website and listen to that um, message again. Um, I think it's really important to understand why we exist, what, what we're here for as a church. <clears throat> and I said that the mission statement of our church, and in my opinion, any faithful church throughout the entire world is the Great Commission. And you need to get used to this. You're going to hear it a lot. You need to memorize it, I think, but go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Those were Jesus's marching orders. But here's the reality. You can't make disciples if you're not one. You can't teach others to obey Jesus if you don't. You can't obey Jesus if you don't love him. And you can't love him if you don't know him. So what I intend to do in this next um, eight weeks of preaching is hopefully approach the gospel with fresh eyes. What actually is it that Jesus teaches? What are we supposed to observe? What is the good news? I think there's a little bit of a challenge to us in that, maybe because of familiarity or supposed familiarity with what the gospel is. Um, God has been speaking to me. I've been asking him to. And the, I'll tell you the secret behind how we decide what to preach. I go and pray, and I find that whatever God is saying to me, I just pass it on to you. That is, there's no real mystery to it. I, as Christianity has been described, it's one beggar showing another one where to find bread. And I think the Lord has given me personally a, a little bit of a stoke in my own walk and challenged some complacency. And I'd grown complacent with good enough you know, good enough. Instead of perfect, the goal is perfect. We're running a race to become as perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. That's what He wants from us. And you can, under the weight and burden of your sin, start to go, "Uh, it's kind of as good as it's going to get. I'll just hang out here. And you can get complacent. And I think I was getting complacent, and then I heard a prophetic word. And I want to read something to you or pass along to you a prophetic voice, I think, to our church and the church universal. This was written in the 90s. Um, I'll tell you who it is in a minute. But whatever the ultimate explanation of it is, meaning the explanation of the reason why Christians don't think they have to obey what Jesus said, whatever the explanation is, the most telling thing about the contemporary Christian is that he or she simply has no compelling sense that understanding of and conformity with the clear teachings of Christ is of any vital importance to his or her life, and certainly not that it is in any way essential. So think about that. I I wonder, is that true to your experience? When you look around at other people who call themselves Christians, do you immediately see someone who very seriously is trying to obey all that Jesus commanded? Or is it more like, well, they've heard about the cross and forgiveness, and yeah, they're kind of just sort of waiting to go be with him in heaven, and not doing any kind of work or any effort to become like him, to become obedient to what he's taught. 
And there are periods in, in Christian history where people were not like that, where people actually thought to be a Christian means to obey Christ and to follow him. And this is a challenge that I think is out there for at least the church in this country. And I wonder if it's true to your own experience. I find that Christianity is often overlooked because people are overlooking something that is not quite what Christianity promises. They think they know what it is and they walk right past it. They, they just, they don't quite see what it is. So I've picked for this little sermon series um, the, the title of, of the, you see on the screen, A Treasure in a Field, Buried Truth and the Joy of Finding It. And if you think about a treasure that's buried in a field, of course lots of people walk past it. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like that. It is sort of hidden, and a lot of people can walk past it. And when people finally see what it is, then in their joy, they will go and sell or give everything they have to be able to acquire it. He's saying that about his kingdom. That's how it should be. And so I think the only reason that people could possibly walk past it if they've, is that they haven't seen it. If people think they know what Christianity is and pass on it, could it be that they don't actually know what Christianity is, at least not what the Bible says it is? So Jesus' parable will be kind of our overarching um, parable for this preaching time. And if you want to read along, I want to encourage you to read Dallas Willard's book, um, The Divine Conspiracy. That's where I'm getting this from. That's where that quote came from. And I'm just going to take loosely the topics from the table of contents as a topical approach to eight weeks about the treasure in a field. And I'm hoping that we will be excited about what the promises of the kingdom are so that then what Jesus asks of us will be something we will seriously pursue. And I think we'll start to see some of God's kingdom breaking into our lives. A lot of times, people don't see God's power in his kingdom, and I think the reason is because we don't need it. We don't need it to just go on kind of at status quo. Where you need the power of God is where you actually try to do something impossible, like be perfect, to live and obey what Jesus commands. You start trying to do that, and you're going to very quickly realize, I can't do this. I need God's power. But if he's promising this, and he says, and I will be with you to the end of the age, his power will start to be seen in your life. It'll look different, and other people will see it as well. It will change how we do mission, how we make disciples. It starts by being a disciple. So if you find the treasure in the field, you will sell all joyfully. And a question I asked is, if I'm not willing to give all that I have and joyfully go get this, why not? Why not? I picked as my passage to actually preach from today is the passage from Genesis 28. And it's known as Jacob's Ladder. It's a very famous passage. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the three patriarchs from the scriptures. God first chose a people in calling Abraham and Abram then and changed his name and, and made a great promise to him. But as they say, God has no grandchildren. So each successive generation has a personal relationship with God. And so at some point in his life, Jacob had to meet the living God, and God reiterated the promise that he made to his father and his grandfather for Jacob's sake, so that Jacob could know God and walk with him. And so what happens is, you, you probably know some of the story, Jacob is a, known as a deceiver. It's what his name um, 
implies. And he had cheated his brother out of his birthright and the blessing of his, fa- his dying father, Isaac. And obviously, Esau was mad about this. And so Jacob flees. He's running away from him, and he gets to a place at sunset. He's heading north. He's going to go 400 miles north and live up in a, a place north of Syria. And he, I guess for lack of a better comforting thing, takes a rock as a pillow, which I find to be a really... I guess it just shows how comfortable my life is. But he gets a rock, and he puts his head on this rock and goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, the Lord meets him and gives him a vision, shows him a ladder going between heaven and earth, and angels are ascending and descending up and down. And he sees the Father standing at the top of that ladder, and God speaks a word to him and makes a promise to him and extends the covenant blessings to him. And when he wakes up, he's terrified And he says, I was in God's house and I didn't even know it. Surely this is the very house of God. And he names it Bethel, which means house of God in Hebrew. He names it house of God. And and, and I've been sleeping on this rock and God was here. So he takes the rock and he builds a little altar with it and he pours oil over it to anoint it. And then he declares it God's house, names it Bethel. Now, the interesting thing about that is God makes these huge promises to him And then he, in response, makes a promise back of what it's going to mean for him. And when I think about the kingdom of heaven, discipleship is not neutral. It's not neutral. It promises much, and it also demands much. We didn't quite read the whole thing, but let me me just follow up what happens next. After God makes these promises, Jacob's response in building that that, uh, altar is, it says that Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will give a tenth to you. So it's not not exactly conditional. I think when he says if, I think he's kind of more like since. Well, if God's going to do this for me, then here's what I'm going to do for him. Since God has made this promise to me, as all this happens, I'm going to give a tenth back. He's going to be my God. I'm going to trust him. And Jacob that day became a follower of God in a new way. He now knew God personally like his father and his grandfather had known him. And it changed for him some things. So it it came out of response to how good the kingdom was, how good and merciful God was. So when I think on this side of the cross, what we know and that Christ is the one who is the ladder who makes a way for us to get to heaven and heaven down to us. When I think about some of the promises God has that would make me want to give my all, there are a ton of them, and they're huge. Listen to just a few of them. I just kind of, I took a sheet here, and I, and I did, not pros and cons, because I'm not saying it's a con to follow God and obey him, but just promises that God has, and then asks, things that he is asking from us. Listen to these things. Here are the promises or the offers. You will have life abundantly. Jesus made that promise. Not just when you die and go to heaven, now. You will have an abundant life in walking with him. Or also, you will find rest for your soul. The human soul is restless by its broken nature. And we all know what it feels like to be chasing something, anything, something to salve it, to calm it down, to satisfy it. We're chasing things. And Jesus is saying, come, follow me, and you'll find rest for your soul. I will satisfy that thing. 
That's a huge promise, especially if you're striving for things. He says, you will withstand the storm. Build your life on my words, which are the rock, the foundation. And when the storm comes, not if, when it comes, your house will stand. You will be able to withstand the storm. And every one of us will go through storms. Some greater than others, some more frequent than others. We don't know how often. We just know that we will have storms in this life. And he's saying, as a promise, build your life on my words, my, as, as a rock. And on that foundation, when the storm comes, your house won't fall down. That is a huge promise, especially when we see other people building their lives on other things and the storm comes and they crumble. We see that all around. <clears throat> you will be transformed and healed. He brings a healing presence and he is fixing things for those who walk with him. Now, I know our bodies are failing in this life and wearing out every single one of us, but the promise is you'll get a new body and it will be perfected. But even until then, he's healing things about our soul. He's healing things about our heart. He is teaching us in this life how to reign with him for the next one. Do you know Paul said, don't you know you will judge angels? That's mind-blowing to me. That God has work for us to do at that magnitude, and this life is about him healing and preparing us to share that reign with him in the next life. He's doing work right now in you so that you're prepared for what comes next. I don't know what comes next, but I know it's big. So he's got to heal a lot in us, but he's transforming us. That's a big promise. And you'll experience the kingdom of God, whereas people don't see it. He says, the king, you won't say, look, there's the kingdom of God. It'll be in you and in the midst of you. You will start to experience things that are spiritually happening when other people can't even see it. That is a powerful thing to participate in another kingdom that's not of this world. Jesus invites us in to share in that. That's part of the promise. And then maybe the most important one, I think, is you will know God personally, that you can know God. He's not some distant God that made you and backed off to see what happens, but rather one who is present here. He's in this place with us. And you can know him and have a personal walk with him, which is what happened for Jacob. On that, from that day forward, he knew God in a whole new way. And Jesus taught his followers. He said, he said to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And his goal was to reveal the personhood of God to his followers. And we will look at some of this over this preaching series. Now, considering the magnitude of those incredible promises, look at what he asks. And just be honest about this. Surrender. 100% of lordship. Hand over your little thiefdom and take your crown off and cast it at his feet. He says, I'm going to be the Lord. You're not. That's, we have to surrender. And then he says, you have to put the old man in you to death, the old ways. Whatever is in you from the old fallen nature, you have to put it to death. And then he gives us an image, the image of his very cross. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for my sake will save it. So he's saying, we have work to do. We have to put stuff to death. He invites us into that. That's heavy. And so it scares us a little bit, thinking, how am I going to do that? How am I going to put that old self to death? And then he says in the Great Commandment, or Great Commission, to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. So we're going to have to go look at what his commands say, and then when we read them, we think, yikes. He's expecting a lot. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And he, he deals with real issues. That's a, tough, that's a tough list of asks. 
But I believe that we don't, have, we don't see the power of God's kingdom because we're not trying to live into that. We're not serious about observing all that he's commanded. So it's really hard to make disciples. Now, I suspect there are three scenarios in this room. The first one is a person who is not claiming to follow Christ. Now, here's the good news for you. You don't have to obey what he commands. You're not a Christian. You're not walking with him. The bad news is none of those promises are for you. You are outside of all of that. And my hope is that starting this very minute, you will look again at what Jesus is offering and not just walk past that treasure in the field. That you will see it and you will go over and examine it and think, I've got to hide this and give everything I can to go buy that field and just lay it all down and go get it. And it will exceed your expectations, I promise you. I promise you that. I think there are some others in here who would be so-called Christians but have no intention to obey whatsoever. You've been sold a half of a bill of goods. You've been given an idea of forgiveness only and not an invitation to discipleship. You've been told you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. If you say a prayer, he'll forgive you and then when you die physically, you go to heaven. And you were not given the invitation to discipleship. No one explained to you the cost of discipleship and they, frankly, they, they left you satisfied with less than what he wants. As C.S. Lewis says, we are too easily satisfied. We let this life satisfy us and God wants more of us and I want us to want more of God because he wants to deliver that. So don't be satisfied with less. Ask God for more and go deeper. And then there are those who really want to obey. You're thinking, I want to do that. I want to obey God and I don't know how. I don't know how to do it. Jesus says, don't be angry. And I'm struggling with anger. He says, don't look with the intent to lust. And I can't not do that. He says, don't covet things. And I just want everything. What do I do with that? Well, we're going to talk about that. There actually is some things. There are things that you can do to walk in the power of the Spirit. And He will do that in you as you come to Him and walk with Him. I'll talk more about that in this coming series. I hope you're excited about it, because I think as you start to do it, you're going to see the power of God. Most people look at the Sermon on the Mount, and they either think, ah, that was for a time when, you know, Jesus was there with them. That's 2,000 years. That was for a different, different era. Or they think, well, that's to, that's to show us how broken we are so that we'll ask for forgiveness. And while I do think it shows us how broken we are, and we go to the law and his word, and we see it, and we go, ah, oh, And then we cry out for help and realize I am broken like that. And he forgives us. And you know what he does? He sends us right back to it. He says, now go live like that. And I will be with you to the end of the age. He actually does want us to live that way. And when it happens, he will get the glory because he's doing it in us and through us. Now I want you to imagine, imagine for a minute, the 500 people who show up here average on a weekend went out into this world and sincerely tried to obey all that Jesus commanded and ask God for the power, moment by moment, to do it. Do you know what that would do? If 500 people started doing that, that would change our entire community. It really would. There's a book that's been on my shelf that uh, one of you gave to me that I'll admit I didn't read for at least two years. It just was in my stack. And I picked it up and read it this week. And the book was written in 1896 by a pastor. And unfortunately, the publishing company in a major way dropped the ball, but in so doing, they contributed to the kingdom of God. They, they in, incorrectly copyrighted it. And so it never got a proper copyright. So anyone can take that book and publish it. So from the very day it started, it was in public domain, which led to 30 million copies of the book going out. 
And what it is, is it's by a guy named Charles Sheldon, and it's called In His Steps. And, and he was a pastor who wrote these little, it's fiction. He, he made up a story, and every Sunday night in his sermon, he would read another chapter. And it's just like, it's like watching a TV miniseries, but it's, it's um, 100 years ago, like pre-prohibition, and it's in an interesting era. But what happens is, the pastor has an experience where he is convicted that he's not living like Christ that he's not extending Christ-likeness to other people. And he preaches in a different way, and then he invites the people on the spot. He says, if you want to come with me, I've got a challenge for you. For the next year of your life, you will do everything asking, if Jesus was with you, what would he do? You know, the what would Jesus do bracelets, that kind of idea, it came out of this book 100 years ago. What would Jesus do for one year, regardless of what it will cost you? I'm going to live that way, and if you want to come. And a whole bunch of his congregation comes. And in this story, it goes through um, a number of characters and what happens. A prominent newspaper man who changes what he covers in the news. And someone who works for the railroad. And and he calls out uh, an illegal thing. Um, A a woman who's a millionaire starts to actually use that money for incredible things. And each story is about God's power breaking into their lives. And how it changes this entire community. And then it goes on a much bigger scale. And he ends up leading a movement up into Chicago. It's a powerful picture of that. And there are two things that kind of happen in those stories. One is it hurts all of them at first. It hurts. They feel immediately the confusion of people who don't understand their behavior, sometimes the financial loss, sometimes a job loss. But then they all experience God's power. And they think, this is amazing. I want to I brag on a, a, a member of our church. I'm not going to say who it is, and I'll be vague enough that he won't know who I'm talking about. But somebody in our church started a new job recently. And this is also somebody who's decided to actually follow Jesus. He's, I would say he is a disciple and he is learning how to walk and obey Jesus's commands. He went to a new job and on the first day of the job, as they were introducing each other, he said to the other people there at his workplace, he said, I want you to know I'm a Christian and I expect you to treat me as such. Hold me accountable to following Jesus. He didn't say, I'm a Christian and I'm going to proselytize you and I'm going to try to get you to think like me. He said, I'm a Christian, treat me as such. And before that first week was out, he had two people staying behind asking questions and asking him to, to explain to them. Most of the time when we think of going and making disciples, we think, I got to walk over to my neighbor's house. I don't want to do this. The pastor guilted me. Knock on the, hey, and you know, like, what am I going to say? Become a Christian? No, be a Christian, really. And people go, what are you doing? You're living how? And, and that's what this guy did in his new job. And he was praying with people in a very public situation because they were asking questions of him when he said, hold me accountable to being a Christian. That's an example of walking in, in the Lord's steps. And how powerful is that? You can't make disciples if you're not one. You can't teach people to observe all that he's commanded if you're not. You can't obey what he's commanding if you don't love him. And you can't love him if you don't know who he is. So I'm hoping this morning that you will resolve to obey, but I'm hoping also that you will take another good look at what the kingdom of heaven is like. What are the promises? Who is this God? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. So it has to start with that love, not just I'm going to work to earn something. So come with me and explore these next seven weeks, these topics we're going to look at. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is hidden in a field. A man covered it up and in all of his joy, sold all that he had, and he went and bought that field. I want to invite you to do the same. Now let's 
Let's pray and ask God to help us in this.